If you're able to stand with me for the reading of today's scripture, Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took, the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you not scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, for, her, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Before Easter, we've been looking at meaningful membership. We've been talking about what is a church, what is its members, what does it look like according to Scripture. We've been looking about how a church is uh, not so much a club to be joined as much as it is an embassy. And what a church does, those things, and, and you, can, you can go back and check out those sermons on our, on our website and, and look into this. But we have to ask the question, right? The, the, the church it's, and its members consists of people who represent Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, we introduced basically asking the question, what happens when one of the Jesus representatives of, of a church stops representing Jesus? What do we do when someone stops representing Jesus? 
Hermano, or Mono for short, is a citizen of Indonesia. He's a diehard American patriot. And on July 4th, 2001, he was enjoying the fireworks on the mall in Washington, D.C., where he lived. And he met a Christian named Doug. Doug had more than fireworks in his plans that day. Doug shared the gospel with Mono. And remarkably, Mono heard and believed. He was born again. Several months later, he was baptized at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and was made a member. It was official. Alert the press and tell the nations. He was a new citizen of Christ's kingdom. The church enjoyed Mono's enthusiasm, his kindness, and his generosity. On one occasion, he purchased a set of dinnerware just so he could host a dinner for all the men in the church who had impacted his discipleship to Christ. He loved the church, and the church loved him. Sometime that fall, after joining the church, the elders learned that Mono was working in the country illegally. He had lied to them about his work status, and he was continuing to lie to his employer, who had believed that he was legal. Opinions at the church were mixed on how to respond to the illegal immigration status uh, since the U.S. government was not enforcing its pertinent laws. But one thing was clear. Christians must not lie to their employers by falsifying their employment status. Jesus does not lie, much less persist in lying, nor should his representatives. For months, the church pleaded with Mono to come clean. It tried to help him financially to go through the process of becoming legal, but still, he refused. Sometimes it looked as if he would relent, but then he clamped down again, resolved to remain in America at all costs. It began to seem as though he prized America more than the word of God. Finally, with broken hearts, the church disciplined or excommunicated Mono for refusing to tell the truth. They told him that they could no longer call him a Christian and affirm his citizenship in the kingdom. They instructed him to stop receiving the Lord's Supper and they removed him from membership. It was a sad day for that church. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 5 and we'll see another situation the Apostle Paul deals with. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 reads this. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would not, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Lord, with humble hearts, we come to this text. These are not easy words to hear. These certainly are not easy words to preach. 
Lord, it is in your word, and so we must deal with it. Lord, I pray you would help. Help us to understand what you would have us to do as a church, how you would have us to function as a church. I pray you would help us, Lord, and humble us before your word today. In your name, amen. This morning, I hope to build on what we began to discuss two weeks ago about restorative church discipline. Two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 18, where Jesus describes a process of restoring a brother who has sinned against another. We found six principles about church discipline. We saw that church discipline is a call to repentance. We saw that church discipline is as private as possible. We saw that church discipline is an urgent process. We saw that church discipline is loving to the individual. We saw that church discipline is loving to the unsaved. We saw that church discipline is healthy for the local church. This week we'll look at another primary passage for the topic of church discipline here in 1 Corinthians 5. Last week, or last time, we were rather vague, um, kind of beginning to set a gospel framework for building a healthy pattern of church discipline. This week, I hope to get a little bit more specific. Not necessarily specific to our church, but to give examples like the one of Mono, looking at more realistic ways that the process can and should be applied in a local church. But first, let's look at our text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll see three major truths come out of this passage. One, we'll see that unrepentant sin is evil in the church. We'll second see that unrepentant sin requires a response from the church. And three, we'll see that unrepentant sin is dangerous for the church. Look at verses 1 through 3. We see that unrepentant sin is evil in the church. Look at verses 1 through 3. He explains the situation, sets the scene for us. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Note that phrase there, among you. This is not just a visitor. This is someone who is tied to the life of the church. They are bound up in the church's membership. They are accountable to the church, and the church is accountable to them. This is someone who has has been declared a representative of Christ. The church has officially declared them to be citizens of heaven, representatives of Jesus for the church and for the community. And it says this person is sexually immoral and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. At that time, as well as today, this was a sin, a type of sin that, was, that would not even be accepted by the culture. And he explains what that is, for a man has his father's wife. This man is having an immoral sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's what's going on here. Not even the lost world would consider that an okay thing. At least not a lost world with any kind of moral standing. And this is going on in the church in Corinth. Now it would be one thing for that to go on, but notice how the church has responded. Look at verse 2. The church thus far is, what Paul says, says, and you are arrogant hey, we got this guy who's coming to our church. He's having a relationship with his stepmom. We're just loving him. Aren't we so happy to have him here? We just want to love on him, make him feel comfortable, make him happy to be here. This is what this church in Corinth has done. They've become arrogant about this sin that is in their church, saying, look how loving we are. We're letting somebody like this stick around here with no responsibility, with no qualifications. Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't this make you upset? Shouldn't you mourn over this person's sin? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says, this is what needs to happen. You have to remove this person from among you. Now we, like the church in Corinth, may respond and say, that sounds really harsh. That sounds 
unloving. Sounds mean. How could you do that? Right, we're all sinners, right? So this guy's got a different sin than I've got, okay. Here's what I think the bottom line is. For the church in Corinth and for any church that would say that this is okay and acceptable and would be arrogant about such a behavior. I would say that it, uh, that church has lost track of what sin is, has lost track of the reality of what sin is, has diminished sin to a point where it is now no longer seen sin as, um, as all that big of a deal. John Piper describes sin this way. He says, what is sin? The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved. That is sin. When there is sin amongst us, that is what is taking place in a person's heart. When there is unrepentant sin, that is what is taking place in the heart of that individual. Whether or not they realize it, that is what is taking place in the heart of that individual. We can assume that this is clearly unrepentant sin. The church knows about it, and this guy has continued to live in this relationship with his stepmother. Now we might ask ourselves the question, why does Paul not say what Jesus said and say, go to the person individually, then bring a group of people with you, and then tell it to the church? He says, just flat out, kick the person out, get him out of there. What's the difference? I would say that the difference is this. Paul, for one, assumes that that takes place because the church already knows about it. The church is already aware. The privacy is gone. There's no longer a private matter. This is now a public matter in the church. The church is fully aware. And because it is something like sexual immorality, there is clear unrepentance. This person has clearly not relented of their sin. It has not repented of their sin. We see that discipline of this type aims to expose sin. Sin loves to hide, does it not? Unrepentant sin is evil because it likes to hide. What discipline is meant to do is to expose sin, to shine a light on it. And hopefully with the end result, that person would repent. And if that person does not repent, are they acting more like a believer or more like an unbeliever? And that's the question a church needs to ask. Second, we see that unrepentant sin requires a response from the church. Unrepentant sin requires a response from the church. We see this in verses 3 through 5 and in verses 12 and 13. Verses 3 through 5 says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says, you know what, guys, I'm not there, but I am there with you in spirit. And as your father in Christ, as one of your leaders, he was the missionary that planted the church in Corinth. He spent time with them. He gives this advice to them. He says, I have, already cast, I have already made a judgment on this situation. I've heard about it. I know what you guys are, dealing, are doing about it. I've already given a judgment on this. You need to give this person over to Satan. And he says, he, notice also, he says, he explains it's not just with his own authority, but he also includes the authority of Jesus in here. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 4, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. 
Remember in the last weeks, we've looked at this, a power that God gives to the church, that Christ gives to the church. He gives the church the keys of the kingdom. And we saw that part of the function of this keys of the kingdom is the, the, the local church's responsibility to affirm or reject people's profession of faith. The church has the authority of the keys. They have this authority that Jesus has. They can act with his power and with his authority to say, this person looks like a follower of Jesus. This person does not look like a follower of Jesus. Now, again, sin is in the world, and churches can absolutely do this incorrectly and poorly. But that doesn't mean we should avoid such an action. What does he mean when he says, deliver this man to Satan? Well, that sounds really, really harsh, right? For our culture, like saying like, send that person to hell. That sounds really bad. That's what it sounds like he's saying to us. But let's clarify here. What does Paul mean, deliver this man to Satan? I would say, and I, and I, I, think, I think what Paul is doing here, he is saying very similar to what Jesus says when Jesus says to treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, why do I say those things all sound, are, the, are the same thing? That is what he is saying is treat him as one who no longer belongs to the covenant community. Treat him that way. The church, after all, is an outpost of the kingdom of God. Everyone who does not belong to the kingdom of God, therefore, belongs to the kingdom of Satan. Satan is the prince of this world, and the kingdoms of the world temporarily belong to him. What he is saying is treat him like he's not a believer. And again, what do we do with people who aren't believers? We share the gospel with them. This person needs to be called to repentance. He needs to hear the gospel again. Not kick him out and, and close the doors and say, don't you ever dare walk in this building again. No, please, yes, come in, but not as a member. Come in as one who needs to hear the gospel. And until you repent cannot be restored in our relationship. It's interesting how Paul continues this in, in 12 and 13. He comes back to this, makes circle back to this idea. Verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. He gives an illustration, and we'll unpack this illustration. He describes there's a difference between people who are idolaters, people who are sexually immoral outside the church, sinful people, unrepentant sin outside the church, and unrepentant sin inside the church. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. But coming to a conclusion on this idea, he says, for what do I have to do with judging those outside? Right? They're unbelievers. That's between them and the Lord. Yes, we need to share the gospel with them, but their ultimate judgment is one that comes before the Lord. But there's a difference between that and someone who is already a part of the church. Someone who is tied to the covenant community. The church has a responsibility to keep that person accountable. He uses the word judge here. We might use the word accountability. I used a silly illustration last time of Albert spreading rumors and lies. I have a responsibility to Albert to say, hey man, you need to knock that off. It is ungodly behavior. And as long as he continues in unrepentance, if he continues not to repent, it is loving for me to tell him, that, hey man, I can't treat you like a Christian right now. You're not, you're not, you don't have the marks of a Christian right now. It's the most loving thing we could possibly do. Here he says it is the most loving thing a church can do to keep accountable those who are inside, right? Those who are members of our church, those who have tied themselves to us in church membership, we have a responsibility towards. I, as your pastor, have a responsibility towards you. Scripture is clear that one day I will stand before the Lord and be judged for you. That's heavy. I believe the Lord will also hold us accountable as a church for those who are inside our church. Unrepentant sin requires a response from the church for two reasons. Discipline aims to warn. This process of church discipline is to warn somebody. Imagine this. This is, this is a picture of the judgment to come. Somebody is running headlong into sin. They are running headlong into 
into unrepentant sin. That is a direction toward hell. Why in the world would we stop and say, oh, that's fun. Have fun with that. Go ahead. No. Discipline is say, hey, wrong way. Turn around. Go that way. You're heading toward hell. Back. It's a warning. It's a loving warning. Discipline also aims to save. They are taking a path toward death, and no arm waving or pleading causes the person to turn around. So discipline, this final step of discipline that we call excommunication, or where, where Paul says to leave the person up to Satan, or where Jesus says to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, it's a device of last resort for bringing an individual to repentance. Trying to get something to click. And maybe that's what it would take for, to get somebody to click. Say, wow, you guys are saying I'm not a believer. Maybe I need to repent of my sin. Third, we see unrepentant sin is dangerous for the church. Unrepentant sin is dangerous for the church. It is not only dangerous for the individual. It is absolutely dangerous for the individual, but it is dangerous for the church as well. Look at, in verse 6, you see how Paul shifts the discussion to now to focus on the church themselves. He says, your boasting is not good. Giving yourself an extra boost saying, we're a loving church because we're letting this go on within our walls, within our congregation, among our people. He says, your boasting is not good good. That's what he says here. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you've ever made bread before, when you add yeast to the flour, it's now yeastified, if you will, right? That's the technical term, just in case you're wondering. It's yeastified. It's not the technical term. But it is now leavened, right? It, It affects everything around it. Paul Paul is using this illustration about leaven to describe what sin does in a church. When unrepentant sin is allowed to sit within a church, what does that do but spread that like wildfire across the church? That person's sin doesn't matter. Maybe mine doesn't matter either. Maybe it's not a big deal what I'm doing. Maybe my relationship with this person isn't such a big deal. Maybe the lies I'm telling my employer aren't such a big deal. That person's not worried about it. You just see how this just continues to grow and grow and grow until you have a congregation full of unrepentant people not acting like believers. This is how churches die, my friend. He continues this illustration. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He uses this, he twitches this illustration and tries to tie it into the Passover. If you remember back in Exodus, God had told them, get rid of all leaven out of your house. Get rid of the yeast, right? Because you're not going to have time for the bread to rise when I call you out, right? And you're going to sacrifice the Passover lamb so that the, that the angel of death will pass over your houses, right? And so he's using this illustration. He says, you really are unleavened. You already are that way. If you are a believer, that's what's true about you. You are unleavened bread. For Christ, our Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. The reality of the Passover has already come to place. And here we are now. We are the covenant people wandering in the wilderness, eating our unleavened bread. Right? He says, you are already clean. You don't have that leaven. Why would you put that back in? Why would you invite that back in? Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a passage saying, don't eat risen bread, okay? That's not what is going on here. He's using an illustration to try to describe how the Passover meal reflects the truth about the church, right? That's what he's drawing. He's saying this, this meal, this Passover celebration describes the church. This is what it should look like. He says, don't go back to the old leaven, the, the leaven of malice and evil, the sinful life you used to live. Don't invite that back in. That would be horrifying. That would be dangerous to you and dangerous for those around you. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what we are pursuing, sincerity and truth. He continues on here. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Notice this, this distinction he makes between the, um, the, the immoral of the world, and then he'll make the distinction between those and the immoral that you call brother. Between the immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, right? If you're, so this word associate, for one thing, this is, this is a word, it means identify. It's to say, I am one of them. He's saying, I'm not talking about like, like to, to, to the, you know, not to associate or to identify. Uh, he's, well, he says, excuse me, go back to verse 9. I wrote you my letter not to associate, that is to identify with sexually immoral people, right? And I said, I'm not talking about unbelievers, right? I'm not talking about that you don't need to identify with unbelievers because you already don't un- identify with unbelievers, right? You are distinct from them. They need to hear the gospel. You have the gospel, right? You've believed in Jesus Christ, they have not. They're not saying not to do that with them. This is verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate, that is identify, to bring identity with them, to find communion and identity with anyone who bears the name of brother. If someone calls themselves a Christian and does this, if he is guilty of sexually, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I'm not saying don't associate with those outside the church. You already don't identify with them, but if someone within your congregation calls himself a Christian and is living a life that is ungodly, that is, it is, a, that is a mark of unrepentant behavior, that is living a lifestyle of, the, of a non-believer, don't associate with them. Don't identify with them. Don't say, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian. That's dangerous for the church. And he makes this interesting statement here. He says, not to eat with such a one. So let me explain what he's talking about there. Paul's purpose in charging church members not to eat with excommunicated members served at least three purposes. To protect Christians from the leaven of sin, which we already saw. To protect excluded members from thinking that the church regarded them as believers. Right? We don't want them to think they're believers because we want them to repent. We want them to come back. We want them to quit running away from the Lord and come back to the Lord. And to protect the church's witness in the community. How many times have you heard somebody say, I don't like church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites? If church doesn't take sin seriously, they are a bunch of hypocrites. It's true. No wonder people don't want to be a part of the church. No wonder people have said, you know what, I don't need to be in the church. It doesn't matter to me. They're all just a bunch of crazy people that don't care about what they're doing anyway. No wonder. In the days of the early church, sharing a meal with an individual communicated the extension of fellowship, care, and protection. Hence the reason the religious leaders objected to Jesus' eating with sinners and tax collectors. And Paul did not want church members to engage with excommunicated members in any way that would communicate this kind of shared Christian fellowship. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, if we were to excommunicate Albert for his sin and for his unrepentant sin, there's a shift in our conversation, right? Me and Albert are not going to talk about, hey, how are we going to grow in Christ today together? No, now my conversation is going to be, Albert, you need Jesus. Here's the gospel, man, right? We can stay friends, but there's a shift in the relationship. Any interaction with the person should have their repentance as a priority. That is the most loving thing that we could do. So in showing that church discipline or the unrepentant sin is dangerous for a church, we see that church discipline aims to protect. Like, like cancer, sin quickly spreads from one person to another. We want to protect against that. If you had cancer in your body, would you let it? Go on and continue to spread to your other cells. No, it would be dangerous for the rest of your body. The same with unrepentant sin in the life of a church. Discipline also aims to present a good witness for Jesus. It helps preserve an attractive distinctiveness of God's people. 
Those outside the church need to see that we care about them enough to say that their sin is ungodly. Not in a judgmental way. This is not taking a Bible and smacking people across the head and saying, get right with Jesus or you're going to burn in hell. Right? It's not what we're talking about. We want to paint a picture of what godly love looks like. We want to paint a picture of what it means to be a Christian. It's not about correcting sin or blowing whistles. It's about correcting sin for the purpose of ensuring that church members are indeed representing Jesus rightly. It's about calling, it's about calling them to be what they claim to be. Expecting someone to be what they claim to be. If you claim to be a Christian, we expect you to be a Christian. So what does that look like? What does this process look like in a church? I'm going to use a silly example about Albert. What does it look like in reality? What would this really look like? I want to share with you two case studies. I apologize in advance. I'm going to read this directly, but that's only because I want to make sure that you guys see an objectivity here. I'm not trying to come down on anybody particularly. And I also want to do this for clarity. This is coming straight out of this book, Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman. These are real situations that have happened in churches. Names have been changed, things like that. But I want to share with you two illustrations, two different case studies of how this looks. Situation number one. Jill was raised by a single mom who had multiple partners, several of whom had treated her and Jill abusively. Longing for a steady male figure, Jill, too, established a pattern in early adolescence of sleeping around and letting herself be taken advantage of by men. She also developed patterns of self-cutting and bulimia. In college, Jill found friends in a college group who seemed to care about her. Somewhere along the way, she started calling herself a Christian and was baptized. Her church preached the gospel, but most of the preaching was shallow, and the church offered little in the way of accountability. Most attendees, including Jill, remained anonymous. Jill soon fell into her old patterns of sexual sin and self-cutting. After college, she began attending a new church where the Bible was faithfully taught and membership was emphasized. She joined. She mostly remained on the periphery of the new church, but she uh, did join a small group with other women where, in time, she found herself admitting how lonely she was and somehow, what, to her surprise, confessing her sexual sin. One day, she arrived at the pastor's office along with a supportive small group member, and she confessed through tears to an alarming level of sexual activity over the period of several months. Should Jill be excommunicated? Should the circumstances of her background weigh into the decision? So now he moves into, well, now how do we assess this? How did this church assess this? In general, fornication calls into question a Christian's profession of faith, particularly when the fornication has, a pattern, has been a pattern or a lifestyle, as it has been with Jill. In her early days as a Christian, she vaguely knew that it was wrong, but her church did not seem to take sin seriously. The church leader made the occasional risque joke, Oh, the college leader, excuse me, made the occasional risque joke, and other members of the college group were known to fool around. She used these things as excuses to harden her own conscience. In the new church, however, her sense of hypocrisy and conviction grew. Yet the sexual partners and emotional needs were deep. The self-cutting provided a temporary sense of absolution over the guilt of sexual sin. As troubling as Jill's pattern of sin was, her first steps of repentance were encouraging. First, she brought the sin into light herself. She had not been caught. Second, she had told her small group, and then, at great embarrassment to herself, a pastor whom she'd only known by acquaintance and whom she respected from a distance. Third, she agreed at this request to meet with, uh, to re- agreed at his request to meet with the staff counselor in the church. Fourth, she said she would prefer for him not to tell the elders, but would respect his decision to do so, knowing that he would act for her good. Through all of this, there was no defensiveness in Jill. She seemed to genuinely mourn the past and long for a different kind of future. The self-cutting was problematic in that it displayed a weak grasp of the gospel. Still, her determination to bring both the cutting and the sexual sin into the light, no matter the cost to herself, spoke well of her repentance. Jill's family background played heavily into how the pastor assessed the situation. Had a woman who had grown up in the church and in a healthy family and who had been active in church ministry confessed this level of sin, his assessment may have been different. This pastor decided to present the situation to the entire elder board, 
but to not recommend excommunication. He shared Jill's story both to check his own response, but also that the elders would better know how to care for this bruised reed. No formal action was taken. What a beautiful picture, right? Repentance is there, so there was no need to move forward. That's what we're looking for. That's what this process is meant to show, meant to look for. Let's look at a different situation. Joe joined the church in January, attended somewhat inconsistently for six months, and then stopped coming altogether. During the time he did attend, he arrived at church late, left early, and never made any relationships. One elder managed to have lunch with him in February and attempted to schedule further meals, but Joe canceled each one at the last minute, usually because something just came up at work. Sorry. No one else in the church seemed to know Joe. In September, the elder realized that he had not seen Joe at church since June and decided to call him again. He left a voicemail. A few weeks later, he left another voicemail along with an email. None of his messages were returned. Several more months passed with no sight or sound of Joe. One or two more messages had been left. At this point, the elder explained the situation to the other elders, two of whom offered to call or email Joe. Several elders' meetings later, Joe's name came up again, and everyone agreed that they had not seen or heard from him in over eight months. Should Joe be excommunicated? If so, for what sin? Joe's sin could be described in several ways. He could be characterized as violating this church covenant in which he promised to take responsibility for his local church. He could be characterized as claiming to love God while also hating his brothers and sisters in the church by utterly neglecting them, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. Perhaps most concretely, Joe was disobeying the command of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, which reads, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews commands Christians to meet regularly so that they can encourage one another and provoke one another to love and good deeds, which is another way of making the first two points above. The author then points to the day of judgment as incentive for why this must be done. In other words, he takes this sin very seriously indeed. The sin of non-attendance is not nearly as obvious as something like adultery. Nonetheless, it's a sin that is often hiding other sins, or at least leading to other sins. Plus, nations like the United States are filled with nominal Christians who bring ill repute to the gospel because churches have not taken responsibility for their non-attenders. Further, if church membership consists in the church's public affirmation of an individual's profession of faith, non-attendance renders the church incapable of fulfilling its responsibility. The church can no longer claim with integrity to oversee one's discipleship. Therefore, excommunication effectively sets the record straight. It's the church's way of saying we cannot account for this individual, therefore we are no longer going to formally affirm his profession of faith. Since Joe refused to respond to the elders' emails and phone calls, there was no way to measure the fruit of repentance, other than to say that there was none. Still, the elders decided not to move toward immediate excommunication. Instead, they decided to tell it to the church, to use the language of Matthew 18. At the next members' meeting, therefore, they put Joe's name in front of the congregation and explained that, if nothing changed, they would move for excommunication on the grounds of non-attendance and at, at the next regularly scheduled meeting in two months' time. They encouraged anyone who had a relationship with Joe to call or email him. The elders also used the opportunity to teach the congregation why attendance is so important. They delayed the motion for excommunication by two more months for at least five reasons. First, it gave more time in accordance with the logic of Matthew 18 to test for Joe's repentance. Second, it gave Joe's friends, in case he had any that the elders were unaware of, the opportunity to join them in the work of calling Joe to repentance. Third, it would take away the shock factor that inevitably attends uh, motions for immediate excommunication. Satan often uses this shock to undermine any confidence that younger and immature sheep have in their leaders. Fourth, it was a last resort measure for taking down, for, for tracking down this strayed sheep. Fifth, it gave the congregation an opportunity to pray together for Joe. Two months later, no one had heard anything from Joe. The elders therefore moved for excommunication and the congregation unanimously assented. Restorative church discipline can be done wrong. 
and has in the past been practiced by churches abusively. If we practice church discipline, we will probably make mistakes. After all, we're human. But that's not a reason to avoid the topic or to avoid practicing. When we practice these scriptural principles to discipline, it should always be done prayerfully, carefully, and with humility. Godly discipline is never easy. But if I am in unrepentant sin, I hope that one of you will love me enough to call me to repentance. The worst thing that you could do for me or for anyone in this church or for this church as a body is to treat my sin like it's okay. Church discipline is fundamentally about love. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The same is true for, the, for his church. The problem is most people today have a completely unbiblical view of love. Love in the Bible is holy. It makes demands. It yields obedience. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus tells us that if we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love in John 15.10. And John tells us that if we keep the word of Christ, God's love will be perfected in us in 1 John 2 verse 5. How do church members help one another abide in Christ's love and see the perfection of God's love in one another? Through helping one another obey and keep his word. Through instruction and correction. A church that understands biblical love stands a far better chance of understanding church discipline. I had another pastor explain it this way. A church cannot practice and will never practice meaningful membership until it understands church discipline. And a church will never practice church discipline until they understand what it truly means to love one another. And a church will never love one another the way God commands it to until they learn what it means to truly love Jesus. Or to put it the other way around, until we truly know what it means to love Jesus, we will never be able to love one another correctly. And until we know what it means to love one another correctly, we will never be able to understand or practice restorative church discipline. And until we understand restorative church discipline, we will never be able to have meaningful membership, a healthy view of meaningful membership in our church. I want to go back to Mono, tell you about him, tell you what happened after this church took this action toward him. The actions of Capitol Hill Baptist Church toward Mono proved to be the most loving for Mono and for the nation of Indonesia. Sometime after his excommunication, Mono left convicted of his sin, bought a plane ticket, and returned to Indonesia. About a year later, he wrote this email to one of the church's pastors. Andy, thank you for this very encouraging email you wrote. Thank you for the, to the church for always remembering me and for continuing to pray for me. I have to confess, I left the church with an unfinished sinful matter, and the sad thing is that I took it lightly. I should have learned to humble myself and come to you for reconciliation. Are we enemies to each other? No, we're Christian brothers. I was too proud and stubborn. My pride led me to think that God alone would settle the matter without me taking some action. Then I went on my own way, and the result? I did not find peace. I know now why God brought me home, because there an eternal prize for me awaited. I wish I could describe to you what kind of relationship I have with him today. It is too beautiful to describe. Andy, I've been praying for this reconciliation to happen, but please show me how to do it. I am longing to reunite with my family again. Lastly, please send my thank you to the church members and to the elders. And I miss you, I miss you all. Much love, Mono. The church sent this back to him. Mono, it's been great to get back in touch with you. I wanted to let you know that last night at the church members meeting, we shared with the membership part of your recent email. Everyone was humbled and encouraged by your words and your actions. The membership voted unanimously to affirm the following motion from the elders. Motion. The church's elders happily recommend that the members of this church acknowledge with thankfulness to God the repentance of our brother Mono, that we formally express to him our forgiveness for his actions toward us, and that we publicly renew our expression of fellowship with him and love for him as our brother in Christ. 
And we do all this with great thanks to God and for his faithfulness to his word and, and to honor those who honor it. Uh, and excuse me, um, give thanks to, great thanks to God and for his faithfulness to his word and to those who honor it by their obedience. Then we prayed for you as a congregation, asking God's richest blessing on you and your life and work. <clears throat> May God continue to encourage and sustain you as, a fellow, as you follow after him, your brother in Christ, Andy. You want to know where Mono is today? He now serves as an, evangel- as an evangelist among a Muslim people group in Indonesia. So the church acted, Mono repented, God was glorified, and now a nation on the opposite end of the planet is reaping the benefit. Praise the Lord. You've heard the message. Maybe you, as you hear this, you need to submit your mind to the mind of Christ in the area of church discipline. Maybe you need to commit to joining in mutual accountability within the congregation. Maybe you know a fellow church member that you need to repent to or lovingly call to repentance. Maybe you're not a believer and you need to repent and believe in Jesus. He died for your sin and he rose again so that you may have life. If that's the case for you, you can talk to me right after right here uh, during the invitation or right after the service. Or maybe you're living apart from the accountability of a local church and would like to become a member of this church. The same goes for you. You can meet me up here or talk to me afterwards. However the Lord would have you to respond, would you respond as the Holy Spirit guides you? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, many times we are unfaithful to you. Lord, very often we find ourselves in sin. Lord, for all those who truly believe, we will come to you in repentance. And those whom we have hurt, we will ask for their forgiveness and their repentance. That's a mark of a believer. Lord, I pray that you would help our church as we think through these very tough issues, that we would see them the way you see them, that we would function in a way that your scripture demands that we function. Lord, I pray during this invitation that each one of us would honor and glorify you in how we respond. In your name, amen.